welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. This week's episode is going to be discussing the history of feminism, and particularly the history of how second-wave feminists came to talk about issues of rape and sexual violence, both within their written work and within the art that they produced that addressed a lot of those themes. My guest this week to discuss this is Nancy Prinzenthal. She's a New York-based writer whose book Agnes Martin, Her Life and Art, received the 2016 Penn Award for Biography. She's a contributing editor and former senior editor of Art in America, and she's also written for the New York Times and elsewhere. Nancy Prinzenthal has taught at Bard College, Princeton University, and Yale University, and is currently on the faculty of the School of Visual Arts. Her latest book is Unspeakable Acts, Women, Art, and Sexual Violence in the 1970s, and that's the topic of today's interview. So obviously Nancy is quite different from a lot of the guests I usually have on who tend to be political theorists and political philosophers or political scientists or something like that. She's coming to this topic from quite a different field of expertise, but nonetheless touching on issues that I would view as sort of political thought or history of political thought. And you'll see in my interview, I sort of focus more on the political and ideological side of this story, but I would really recommend the book. I learned a lot from it, and there's a lot of stuff to do with the art itself that um, I don't get to in this interview, but if this conversation makes you interested in it, I would absolutely recommend picking it up to learn more about that. It's absolutely fascinating. As I mentioned in the intro to the last episode, which was a little long, apologies for that, but as I mentioned then, I've been on a bit of a streak talking about the philosophic and theory issues that are arising from contemporary American politics, and I think for at least the the next little bit of the podcast I'm going to take a break from that and go back to some sort of history of political thought questions and interviews, both the history of modern political thought, which I guess this, and also, for instance, my interview with David Farber on the crack epidemic, which those would fall into, and also just sort of more traditional, traditional, like Thomas Hobbes' history of political thought, which we're also going to be doing. So, to people who are more following the podcast for the history and theory, thanks for sticking with me through my recent political science contemporary politics binge, Um, To those who are, you know, here for the contemporary stuff, um, I would encourage you to listen to the history stuff as well, because certainly my... I don't even want to say my understanding of contemporary politics, but my ability to think up narratives and ways of looking at the world that help me have answers to many of the thorny issues in contemporary politics has definitely been enhanced by looking at the historical development of ideas and systems and social 
customs and behaviours that led us up to this point. And, you know, as I always say, it's been an incredible privilege doing this podcast. And, you know, I just feel like my ability to sort of talk and think about a lot of what's going on in politics, um, I've gained so much by reading these people's books and by interviewing them, and I hope I've passed that on to, to you as well. So we'll continue to do a mix, and certainly I would be amazed if I got through 2020 without feeling the need to do either some solo episodes or um, interviews that respond to the events of the day. But I think at least the next few will go back to um, history and theory. So that's a bit of a side. Anyway, let's get to today's episode. As always, if you want to support the podcast, please do share it on your social media or recommend to friends. If you're able to support it in a more monetary way, we do have a Patreon, and this podcast has no commercial advertisements, no sponsors, nothing like that, so these wonderful guests and conversations I'm bringing you, you can listen to them uninterrupted without, you know, me coming on halfway through to try and convince you to buy. Well, you know you know what's weird is every time I listen to podcasts, they're trying to st- sell me stuff for mail balding and these subscription services that help people dress themselves who apparently don't have any fashion sense. So, you know, make make what you will of that, right? But anyway, here at the Political Philosophy Podcast, we do none of that. All of the expenses of this show, which are not trivial, by the way, are covered by the generous support of our listeners, for which I am very grateful. And if you would like to join them at any amount, even if it's a dollar or two, go to patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast, and it's super easy to get set up there. Apart from that, let's get straight to it. It is my absolute pleasure to bring you my conversation with Nancy Prinsenthal. I am joined today by Nancy Prinsenthal. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So, how do you um, how do you think about what you do? I always ask the question in a sort of trite, cliche sort of way. Of you know, you meet someone at a party and they say, "Ah, oh, so what do you do? What's your what's your go to for that?" My go to for that is I write about art, which is um, a simplification of what used to be called being an art critic. I actually teach in an art writing MFA program at the School of Visual Arts, which at its inception was described as an MFA in art criticism and writing, but the criticism has been eliminated. So there you have it. I write about art, mostly contemporary art, but going back into modern and sometimes earlier art as well. Okay, and so you came to write this book, Unspeakable Acts, Women, Art, and Sexual Violence in the 1970s, which I read as... I read picking up on the sort of bits of history of feminism, history of protest movements, history of culture, and I was coming to it from that point of view, but you came to it and came to the material from an art history or art criticism or however you want to phrase that point of view. I did, and um, 
as I said, um, my my field is contemporary and recent art, but it's clearly a book that's a kind of a hybrid, and it's a kind of hybrid that I've become increasingly interested in. My my previous book before this one was a biography and monograph on the painter Agnes Martin, and I got very caught up in um, the social and cultural context for her work. And I, um, I do think that it's also become more typical of art writing in recent years to move away from the kind of formalism in which I was trained, in which nothing outside of the object itself was meant to be addressed with any specificity and instead to embrace the wider cultural context. So it's um, both typical of our time and also something that's become personally very, um, very important to me, especially as I've moved from writing principally for magazines and newspaper to, um, to writing at, at longer length, which has been very gratifying. So can we start with the cultural context then, as you said, because you're discussing art and sexual violence about, well, it's the 70s, so about 50 years ago now, right? Um, what One of the things I always have to remind myself when I'm reading history is the people you're reading about don't necessarily see the world through the same pairs of glasses that you do. They don't have the same cultural assumptions or pick up on the same things as important. Um, looking back to the 70s then, and rape and sexual violence, what would you flag to someone approaching this topic for the first time as the differences between how people saw it then and how we today would think and talk about it now? It's a really good and, and deep question, so mm. I'll, um, I'll try and dive right in. Of course, sexual violence has become, in the last few years, with the Me Too movement, something that we all think um, we are having an opportunity to um, both address with a kind of robustness that hasn't been possible in the past and also to draw upon the kind of speaking out and speaking up that uh, first arrived, at least in our time, with second wave feminism, so-called, in the early 1970s. And I guess I should very briefly say here, the first wave fe feminism is the suffragette movement, is the, is the drive for women's um, enfranchisement, second wave fe feminism arose. Um, all over the place, but um, for my purposes, principally in the United States and in the early 1970s, late 60s and early 70s. And one of the places um, or one of the conditions that got me going on this um, in the 70s, I should also say, is when I became an adult, um, when I graduated college, uh, is that, in fact, it was very difficult for second wave feminists in the beginning, when they were first coming together in groups, consciousness raising groups and other groups, to address sexual violence. It was um, an area that um, caused trouble that women were reluctant to speak about for a wide variety of reasons. So one thing I was struck by um, on the sort of intellectual history of feminism 
which I am somewhat familiar with, like I've done courses on this and stuff, um, but I guess you don't notice things by their absence, right? It's much easier to notice something that is there than something that isn't there, and something that your book, even just in the first chapter, calls attention to, is how little discussions of any sort of rape or sexual violence were there in the big... um, in the big known canonical works of second wave feminism. This was something that feminists in the second wave, at least initially, simply weren't addressing, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. And and even the, the major texts that they were drawing on, um, texts that go back to the 40s in the case of Simone de Beauvoir's um, landmark book, The Second Sex, and, and um, to the 60s in the case of Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique. And um, Betty Friedan didn't talk about sexual violence at all. It just wasn't part of the picture she was interested in um, in establishing. And, and um Beauvoir did talk, I mean, you know, hers is a, is a more comprehensive book, of course, um, and written from a different continent and a different, altogether different political perspective. Um, but even she, you know, mentions sexual violence in a sort of scattershot ways, endemic to the female condition, but more or less as part of the background of the major issues that women had to fight, um, which had to do with um, questions of equity and power in the workforce, power in in the home, political power. Um, And that's sort of how um, feminism, second wave feminism arose in this country was around issues of power. Of course, it arose um, partly out of and in resistance to um, other activist movements, the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement. And um, there were some sort of um, famous incidents, for instance, in um, SDS, the Students for Democratic Society, um, meetings in the late 1960s where um, women took the stage to say, okay, so what about our liberation? And, you know, note has been taken that because the language of activism in the 60s and and early 70s was was premised on the language of... um, struggles against colonialism and also the language of Marxism. And so women um, talked about being liberated, about, you know, establishing their um, their resistance to the um, the patriarchy. In, in any case, so, you know, and there was one 1967 SDS meeting where women got up and were, you know, sort of maneuvered off the stage. And then um, two years later, Marilyn Webb, who was an SDS leader at the time said, okay, so here we go. You know, it's time for us women to, you know, put forward our, our platform here. You know, we have grievances as well. Uh, you know, there was a range of grievances, of course, that were being addressed at the time, mostly to do with the Vietnam War. And um, she was met with absolute um, outrage and, you know, men yelling epithets from the audience, you know, take her, take her off the stage, take her down a back alley, do terrible things to her. Um, at just, you know, complete, um, fury and rage. And, you know, so it's against that background that, and, you know, against a background of threatened violence and also, um, misogyny within those movements that amounted on some occasions to, if not outright violence, certainly a very high level of coercion 
that women realized, you know, uh, folks, we're, we're going to have to, um, we're going to have to break off and work on this ourselves. We're not going to be able to do it within these existing movements. Um, and so th the initial concerns were, um, just as Ferdan and, and Beauvoir and other early feminists had outlined them, were concerns about, um, about power um, and about establishing equity. And um, as Susan Brown Miller described in her landmark 1975 book, Against Our Will, Men, Women, and, and Rape, um, she, she says, and it's a funny phrase, she, she shrieked in dismay um, when somebody brought up the question of rape and whether or not that was going to be an issue. You know, she, she, Brown Miller describes um, the prevailing inclination among her, her women peers and friends, um, which was to, um, to stick up for um, the accused, to worry about um, people who were being unfairly um, framed by uh, the authorities. It was all about, um, uh, about solidarity in, in the face of, um, of prosecutions of, of men that were unjust. So could we, could we summarize it? the intellectual history part thusly, and we'll come back to the um, interaction with the broader protest movement part. Yeah. Um, but in early second wave feminism, or sort of like, I guess in Beauvoir's case, like sort of proto-second wave feminism, um, the um, women being, um, raising concerns about women not being subjected to sexual violence or rape was not one of the central goals of the movement. The central goals were stuff like equality in the workplace, equality in political systems, stuff like that. And to the extent that rape was considered, as in the case of Beauvoir, it was considered sort of as part of the background conditions of female socialisation that were part of leading women to be in that power imbalance, but it was it was just that. It was considered in the same way we might consider giving boys and girls different toys. And it's a background condition, but the goal is to have equity in the workplace and political systems and so on. But then by, like, the middle of second-wave feminism, that has changed, and concerns about women not being subject to sexual violence or having redress in the cases that they are, that's shifted from a background condition to a goal. Did I, did, do you think that's the, uh, would you accept that summary or is there anything you'd want to add to that? That, that sounds, um, that sounds just about perfect to me that I, I believe that's as it happened. Brown Miller's book came out in 1975. There had there had been a fair amount of um, outspoken discussion taking place, and you know I should also add to that um, to that discussion of how rape entered the um, how rape wound up on the agenda of feminism is that this anathema against um, speaking from a position of victimhood, while it hadn't gone away, had begun to seem counterproductive. You know, we have to talk about this um, became a more important tack to take. And, and indeed, um, 
it was nearly impossible, you know, for women to speak out about these things, you know, even when, when the resolution had been made, um, the, the sort of doing it in, in, um, in practice was, was much more difficult, um, remains more difficult, I want to say, although I'm sort of stepping out of the chronology here, um, than many people understood from the start. Um, and I, I should also sort of inject here um, a note about how and when it became possible for artists particularly to take on these subjects. And um, what was happening in the late 60s and 70s um, is that an art world dominated by men, of course not the only professional world that was dominated by men, um, began to be um, addressed by women who were seeking and gaining some visibility and um, doing completely different kinds of artwork than men were doing at the time. And there was a little bit of struggle that took place um, in that period, the, you know, the early 70s, um, around whether or not women would remain ghettoized if they made their own kind of art. Um, why can't women succeed in doing just the kinds of art that men are doing and, and, you know, and be taken seriously as minimalists, for instance, doing great big abstract work made out of, you know, forged metal, which is one of the primary idioms of that period. And um, a, a very um, prominent and, and quite fantastic art historian of the time, Linda Nochlin, who wrote this um, very important article in 1971, Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists? It was a kind of ironic question, and she um, she answered it herself by saying it's an institutional problem, obviously not a problem of a dearth of talent and capability among women. Um, but she also said, and this is you know much less recognized in the celebration of this essay, um, so okay, ladies, um, let's make sure that we're not putting, you know, our personal narratives ahead of the, um, of the important work we need to be doing here to gain credibility. This is, you know, we're not, we're, we're not going to in, indulge in our the phrase she used was sob stories. It's not about personal grievances. Um, and especially here on the East coast, um, that became a, a pretty powerful anathema that, um, that um, was supported for a long time. So the the most um, radical work being done by women as feminist artists um, was happening in that period on the West Coast in, in Los Angeles. So in other words, to sort of um, just try and even just make sense of this myself, if you ask the question, um, sorry, if you ask the question, like, why, you know, given how questions of sexual violence are so central to contemporary feminism, why was it so absent, at, at least at the beginning of second wave feminism? There's cultural stuff you could talk about. There was a, both a, a greater cultural acceptability of rape as well as a greater cultural stigma about talking about it. There was ideological constraints in terms of the left at the time wanted to be pro-prisoners' rights and anti-criminal justice system. But there's also this final concern that you're teasing out, which you might almost say is tactical, which is when women are going in and trying to um, fight their way into, as it were, male-dominated spaces, be it the art world or be it other forms of employment or politics, they want to be 
as strong and tough as the boys and don't want to make it about personal factors that make them different from them. Is that right? It's, it's that last one I'm trying to put into words. Yes. Um, and of course, it's it's dangerous to generalize about any of these things. And um, there were women who did quite fabulous work that was you know, altogether abstract and, and continue to do so throughout the intervening years and decades, um, and women who were taken very seriously for doing personal work. But that took some time. Um, and when, um, as it did at first, it took the shape principally of women doing performance art, of using um, themselves, their bodies, um, in live performances, um, that was uh, both a radical notion, it was a provocation, uh, it was something that women, and I believe this is a strong argument, um, I'm not the only one who's made it, that women pioneered performance art, but there were certainly a, a significant number of men who were doing so as well. Um, and even doing so in, in ways that put their bodies at risk, which is w one form of art, um, performance art that puts one's body at risk that I um, talk about in Unspeakable Acts. So artists such as Chris Burton, um, who might be most well-known for this kind of work, had himself shot, had himself nailed to the hood of his car, you know, did some um, pretty masochistic things in the service of um, expanding the language of what was um, called visual art, even though it was a live performance. Um, so, so that, sorry, go ahead. So, in other words, in terms of the story we've been telling so far, you have um, an emerging um, second-wave feminist movement that's trying to, shall we say, fight its way into traditionally male-dominated spaces, including the art world. But its goals really don't touch on rape or sexual violence at all, um, because of background conditions like culture, ideology, even just consideration of like strategy and tactics. But then something changes, and you get a number of books in the 70s, as well as a number of like art pieces that take it on directly as a goal. So like my question is what changes? Is it something in those background conditions that has changed? Or is it just individual agency? Like particular women have decided, like, no, I'm going to sort of challenge this um um prevailing paradigm and I'm gonna talk about this thing whether you know you like it or not. So hard to know, you know, which came first. And of course, once the once that box was opened, it was very hard to close it against one. Again, once women started to to speak up um, and discover how many other women had um, had suppressed similar stories. Um, it was, you know, there was no going back. But I, you know, I also don't want to exaggerate how much of this work existed. It was you know, it's a small body of work. Um, if you're looking at art that was made in the 70s and even the 1980s um, that addressed the subject directly, it's just a, it's a handful of performance projects and um, what, you know, what would be called now social practice art, art that was, that took the form of 
um, of activism, um, just straight ahead. Let's organize, uh, you know, let's get out in the streets. Let's bring, you know, all of the stakeholders on board. Let's get the government talking to us and the police force talking to us and, and social services talking to us and just bring some light to bear on this subject. But I started the book by um, talking about sort of precursor artists. Yoko Ono is probably the best known here and um, I think among the most important who did a, a piece she staged it several times in the early and mid 1960s called cut piece in which she simply um, sat on a stage and invited members of the audience to come up and snip at her clothing and the responses varied a great deal and in one case she was left literally naked although um, in other performances uh, the audience many of them most of them in some cases um, the participating audience mostly men um, stopped when she was reduced to her undergarments um, but I, I don't think it's difficult to see this as an opening to talking about sexual vulnerability and sexual victimization and um, there was another um, performance piece in the later 1960s by Valley Export that similarly staged an experience of being made vulnerable to male aggression um, in Valley Export's case, um, you know, in performances done on the streets in Vienna. So um, when artists first began uh, to deal with, with this issue with rape uh, explicitly, um, there wasn't a huge audience, there wasn't a huge response, and there wasn't a huge um, kind of, re you know, returning to the subject outpouring of art on this on this same and issue. And if you look at the the um, the writing side of this uh, along the development of feminism, um, I got a similar vibe when you cover the intellectual history in that you do get a few feminists overtly writing books about rape uh, across this same period. But I got the feeling when you summarised it that there wasn't that many and they didn't have much to draw on. That's right. I mean, you know, Susan Brown Miller's book was a key book, and it was, it was really pretty much alone on the shelf for a long time. Um, and it was controversial, and, um, you know, there were um, quarrels that could be had with it and were had with it. And, of course, it, it became a subject that other women addressed um, and addressed very vigorously in um in other broader discussions of um, what feminism needed to do. But to talk about sexual violence in isolation it remained a problem. And, you know, frankly, it's one, of the, it's one of the reasons that I thought it was important to write a book like this because there continues to be this kind of um, sort of burying explicit violence, you know, burying what rape is in a spectrum of offenses that are sort of included metaphorically under the heading rape, um, but really are other things like, you know, not being given opportunities in the workforce or not being um, treated equitably or not 
being paid the same as, you know, I mean, being denied opportunities, you know, the kinds of things that um, feel like violations, but aren't actually physical violations. And, uh, you know, one of the one of the places I like to think this story starts is with a book that was first published in a very small edition in 1972 by the artist Suzanne Lacey, and it's called Rape Is. And it's a little square book, um, white covers that are um, closed with a red seal that you have to break, obvious metaphor there, on opening the book. And it's designed like the um, Peanuts cartoon books that were popular at the time, 72. Um, You know, happiness is, and then you would see, you know, Charlie Brown, um, you know, doing something that made him happy. And so in this case... On the left side of every spread is the phrase rape is, and on the right side is a concluding phrase. So rape is, you know, when you get heckled in the, you get whistled at in the street, or rape is when, you know, your your grandfather bounces you on his knee. And, you know, it moves from there to um, really quite horrific concluding sentences, being, you know, gangbanged and, you know, being grateful you've escaped with your life. But there, there is and there was and is this tendency to equalize all of these experiences. And I think it's been a real double-edged sword. It's brought a lot of women on board. Um, you can see that in the very fact that um, what we have now is, the, is a movement that's hashtagged Me Too. Um, everyone, you know, feels they are part of this experience and every woman in some degree has. But if we're talking about something that needs to be addressed as sexual violence, then we need to be clear about what that is. I mean, there's, um, could you try and separate out contextualization and situating a particular act within, I'm just speaking off the cuff here, within a broader culture and equalizing. So you can kind of say that what makes or what contributes to rape happening is a culture in which we use certain language about women and not about men is a culture in which it's you know we say things like man up or don't be a sissy and so on and so forth um linguistic feminists will give a better account of this than me and that can create a social environment which enables rape but it's obviously we wouldn't and if people do this is what i'm hearing you want to push back on say that rape is the same as those things or that those things are rape am i am i hearing you right there Absolutely. That's that's um, exactly as I see it. And and yes, we we you know, we are sort of living and have been living for millennia, I suppose, you know, in what could be called a rape culture. That's a problem. Um, And um, and language absolutely matters. And I, I want to say here that all these things have actually improved since the 1970s. And that was, again, one of the things I um had in mind when I embarked on this book, it was clarifying what things were like in the seventies and, you know, in the distance that we 
covered. And when I went to this source that was used by not only Susan Brown Miller, but, but Susan Griffin and um, a number of other feminist writers at the time who were, Susan Griffin was another who was very explicitly writing about rape in, in the early years of second wave feminism. And, and they referred to this book um, called Studies in Forcible Rape um, by... Um, could you could you talk about this? Because this I, is just a little nugget of intellectual history I didn't know, um, and I found absolutely fascinating. So when the first books about being raped were written by feminists, there was only really one scholarly source which they could go to, right? Could you, could you talk about this a bit? Um, yes, I may actually have to go to the book to... Um... <laughs> To get the statistics, but the language was, um, so here is a, a sociologist who was at the University of Pennsylvania writing um, a book that reflected work that was first published in the Northwestern Law School um, publication. So, you know, a man with significant credentials um, and um, the, the very fact that forcible rape was part of the title tells you something about um, about the, the problems with the language at the time, right? Because um, is there really another kind of rape, rape that isn't forcible? You know, there was this like, you know, can we please um, be clear about what, what we're saying when we use terms like that? And um, so, uh, you know, he was using statistics from really from the 50s and early 60s to develop um, this argument that was published in, I, I think it was the early 1970s and um, 71, I believe. And um, what I found most stunning about this book when I, when I surprisingly found it on the shelf in, in um, the NYU library um, was that he talked about something he called victim precipitated rape. And you know, I had trouble with forcible rape, but victim precipitated rape really kind of stopped me cold. And um, when I read further, I discovered that he believed that victim precipitated rape, that is rape that victims bring on themselves. He actually got to the point of using it as an acronym, VCR, um, could occur in, in girls as young as five, that, you know, girls could behave in ways that brought on um, the consequence of being assaulted and um, that even violent rape could be described in those terms. Uh, you know, it's a book that's full of racism. It's full, I, I mean, just the most horrific kinds of assumptions. Um, it's it's full of the most vicious generalizations about um kids who were brought up in, in poverty. And yet it provided a sort of statistical um, background for women who wanted to write about how prevalent rape was. Um, he defined um, ways that boys and young men, men um, take strength from each other in perpetrating gang rape. Uh, you know, he, that were useful to feminists and, and just saying, look at how prevalent this behavior was. And, you know, when I asked a couple of them later, uh, so how, you know, what did you make of some of this terminology of some of these um, conclusions that this man, Menachem Amir, was coming to? They said, oh, you know, 
really, I, you know, I don't even remember that given the, the level of, of discussion of discourse at the time. It, it was practically invisible. So, I mean, that, that was probably one of the most surprising things that I came across. So when fem- feminists first start to write about rape, and you kind of do what all of us do when you're writing an essay and do a Google Scholar search and just sort of see what's been written on something, or the equivalent back then of a Google Scholar search, there was essentially one academic study which was loaded with, let's be charitable and say cultural biases, but that was all they had to start with, right? When they wanted to get statistics or anything like that, they had this this one thing and that was it. Essentially. I mean, you know, it's not hard to get uniform crime reports from the FBI, for instance, and women did start to do that and, and you know, do their own statistical work on, um, on how prevalent um, this form of crime was. But, you know, with sexual violence, statistics are, in fact, notoriously unreliable. That has always been a problem. Women don't report it. Police don't prosecute it. Uh, you know, it it, um, it has historically been incredibly difficult to win a conviction. Um, so it's, you know, and, and the numbers just vary um, really widely. Yeah, I mean... I'm just struck by, again, the the theme I keep returning to is this sort of the past is a different country idea in that we've talked about the cultural differences, the ideological differences. There's also just like the intellectual environment differences. I assume now if I was doing a course in women's studies or something and I wanted to find scholarly articles about rape or about sexual violence's treatment within feminism, I would find reams and reams and reams of stuff, but there was just nobody interested in working on this on any side. I find I find it fascinating. And, uh, you know, a lot of the development of the literature has come up with the understanding of um, what trauma does to a person. Trauma studies is something that didn't exist. The word trauma didn't enter, um, you know, the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical you know, the, the clinical manual for um, psychiatric treatment until 10 years later, it, you know, it, it was the culture that we live in now, um, which is so attentive to experiences of individual harm to trauma didn't exist at this period. And it, it, that's another thing that's kind of difficult to recover Well, that brings us on to the role of art then, because I've spent a bit of time on um, sort of the intellectual development of feminism here, but then talking of trauma and psychology and the role of the emotions and so on, um, what what does art bring to the table that wouldn't be available or perhaps wouldn't be available um, as fully in, say, writing a scholarly work, say, or giving a speech, say? What does what does art allow us to do, or allowed, I guess, past tense feminists then, to do in this space that simply writing a theory book wouldn't? It's a good question, and um, if I can do it justice... Um, you know, sexual assault, rape are um, are visceral experiences, and um, 
as Elaine Scarry says about pain, they do rob the victim of speech. So addressing them in a, a pictorial or performative way is a way of getting at the experience of expressing the wordlessness that um, trauma, to use the word that um, has been applied, um, that trauma enforces, that um, inability to um, to make a, to form a coherent picture for oneself of um, what what has happened. It's um, at, at one point in in this book, Unspeakable Acts, I, I call it a speech act of the body, which in a way it is. It you know it's and it it is um, a difficult act to um, to express to evoke. It, it's very difficult to express pictorially an act of sexual violence without um, enacting it without presenting a you know a, a image that for some people would be considered pornographic and that opens up a whole other can of worms about how pornography um split the feminist movement in the in the 1980s i'm not an advocate for suppressing imagery um but what art makes possible is the use of um of vocabularies that rub up against each other, that um, work against coherence in the interest, coherence of the kind you expect from a written text, right? Um, in the in the interest of having a sensual experience or a perceptual experience that is like the kind of terror or confusion um, that is at issue. One thing, this, again, I'm just sort of speaking off the cuff with my own thoughts, but the one thing I think we can often do unless prompted otherwise is when we imagine an experience, we imagine ourselves in a certain role, and we tend to imagine ourselves in a sort of dominant role, as it were. So, like, a friend pointed this out to me a while ago, is if you think back and someone says, you know, imagine yourself in the time of slavery, if you're white, you'll tend to just implicitly imagine yourself as um, someone who owned slaves as opposed to the slave. It could. Is there a similar thing going on here where if you ask men to think about rape, they think about raping? Um, even if, you know, they're good and decent men and have never done anything like that. That's still where their mind would go. And what art is asking us to do in a way that perhaps a merely written work couldn't is to bring us into contact with the emotions and feelings of the victim. Hmm. Such an interesting idea. Yes. <laughs> I, I think that's that's one really powerful way of looking at it. I mean, I, I, I also feel I should back up a little and say, of course, you know, women aren't the only victims of rape. And, right. you know, the whole um, I, my part of my justification for focusing on women is that I, I was talking about. I'm, I'm talking mostly in this book about what people um, believed and 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 expressed in in the 19 in the 1970s and of course um happily since then we've um, become a little bit more sensitive to um how inadequate that kind of gender binary is um and how widespread 
sexual victimization is um, across it. But yes, um, if, if making people who don't think that this has anything to do with them come to some understanding of what's involved can only be helpful. Because a lot of the work that you reference in this book is very um, violent, for lack of a better word, right? There's a lot of the images in just the centre of the book that are reprinted that have a lot of blood and are quite visceral, basically, right? Like, it's it's provocative, triggering, to use a sort of modern social justice word. Yes, that's true. And I, I think you must be talking about Anna Mandietta's rape scene works. Um, and, uh, you know, th- those tableau, so these are... Um, these are tableau that were staged by Anna Mangieta when she was a student. She was very young um, at, in Iowa, and um, she um, was in Iowa City where uh, um, uh, what was described, although it turned out not to be true, as a rape murder, a young nursing student um, was murdered. As it happened, she wasn't raped, but it, it was believed for a long time that she had been, and um of course, it was horrific, and it was um, the first crime of its kind that had been reported, at least for a long time. And so um, Mendieta staged these scenes in which she bloodied her legs and, you know, leaned over a table naked from the waist down, or um, she laid down in the fields entirely naked as if she were dead, and um, or she had um, – she – put some mattresses in an old farmhouse and drenched them in what looked like uh, very bloody, gory, sanguinary work. And um, similarly, there was a performance done in 1972 called Ablutions that was a collective work that brought together a number of women in Los Angeles. Um, And it was also a very kind of, uh, you know, over-the-top piece in which there was a vat full of blood and a vat full of eggs and a vat full of liquid clay and women got in and out of these tubs and beef kidneys were nailed to the walls and then um, there was the recorded testimony of women who had been raped that was heard above um, these uh, kind of ritual gestures that were being made and I think that kind of too muchness and um, the bloodiness was an understandable sort of first outpouring. And the work that has been done since on this subject has been increasingly, um, I don't want to say cleaned up because it hasn't, um, but increasingly specific and increasingly um, pointed and I think more and more effective in expressing exactly what the circumstances are for, you know, particular women or particular kinds of situations in which violence occurs and um, how we're not paying attention to um, the, you know, the widespread nature of this problem. So that leads me to my next question, which is what were the what were the reactions to this? Because I'm coming from a place where I'm fairly enmeshed 
in the contemporary culture war in which, you know, we've had Me Too, but there's also been an outpouring of rage against it, and there are entire sections of the internet given over to just um, a sort of white-hot hatred of contemporary feminism, or I think more accurately I would say a caricature of contemporary feminism. And, you know, the response of some people, men or women, to Me Too has been, oh my god, this is, you know, really shocking and an eye-opener and something I need to think more about. The response of a lot of people again, some men and also some women, has been, this is going way too far, and it's exaggerated, and so on and so forth. There must there must have been a, a similar backlash to when these themes were first starting to be discussed in the 70s, right? You know, I think when these things were fo- first beginning to be discussed in the 70s, the primary response was silence. I think the audiences were small, um, and they arose from a kind of overwhelming sense of need among the women who made them. And um, they didn't have an enormous initial impact. That's my sense. Um, You know, when I looked into um, the interviews that some of Mendieta's fellow students gave some years after the fact um, to a woman who was doing research, on Mandieta, you know, most of them didn't remember these um, these tableau that she staged. And if they did, they said, oh, you know, quiet. Really? Nobody said anything. And, uh, you know, I can tell you that that remains something of a problem. You know, that if you start talking about a project you're working on, you say it's about rape, you know, it's not quite the same as, you know, saying you're working on a project and it's about, you know, injustice against women. It it leaves people with um, very little to to say, unless, you know, it's something that they want to address from a personal perspective. That is changing. And for sure, a backlash um, is yeah, is well underway. And, uh, you know, these are things that need to be addressed on a case-by-case basis. So, you know, if the conversation goes, well, you know, should Al Franken have lost his job? Uh, you know, I think many people and many feminists would say, no, he was thrown under the bus, you know, for political reasons. Um, so, but again, is what he did actually Something that we want to call a form of rape. No, uh, you know, to my mind, and this is a personal, um, personal judgment, obviously. Um, so yeah, there, you know, backlash for sure. And you know, will people feel threatened? Absolutely. And are people worried about um, being penalized or um, losing their jobs for um, something deemed to be a minor infraction? Um, Maybe, you know, I mean, I'm sorry uh, if that happens. You know, there are definitely going to be some growing pains here. Yeah, I mean, there's so much I... There's a number of thoughts I have there, because I am sort of more situated in the contemporary debate. I mean, on the Al Franken case, I felt so 
conflicted with that one, because I like Al Franken a lot. I read his books in college, I followed his political career since he was elected in 08, I think. Um, I don't, I'm not expressing an opinion as to whether what he did was bad enough to warrant losing an existing Senate seat. I can sort of see that one both ways, actually, because I think if you look at Al Franken's entire political career, there is a good argument that on balance there's enough good there, you know? Um, But then at the same time, I can see people who say when we have Trump in the White House, we have to, like, put deeds to words and show that we're willing to clean up our own side as well. I'm not immune to that argument either, you know? I think that one's a real. I think that's a really hard case, the Al Franken one. Yeah. I mean, if we want to um, address the president's offenses, I think we need to address the president's offenses. I mean, they're in a class by themselves. Yes. Um, or at least um, they're, they're demonstrably, I mean, they're known to be of a completely different order of magnitude than anything Al Franken was accused of doing. Um, so, you know, there too, I think the tendency to make these equivalences that can't really be supported is counterproductive and that knowing the specifics, which, you know, I can't pretend to know all of the ins and outs of the Franken situation, uh, but I I did read in that article in the New Yorker that um, Jane Kramer, I think it was, that um, his accuser, you know, had her own very definite political agenda and um, that he was just staging a skit um, that had been acted over and over again in these USO performances going back to Bob Hope and that the, you know, the photograph that caused all the trouble um, was part of that same tradition and, uh, you know, and so on, that it, you know, it, it is so easy to jump to conclusions. And, uh, you know, because so much of how these struggles play out is in the media rather than in any kind of due process situation. Um, Emotions, you know, flare with, I mean, that's the problem with, uh, you know, with the media world that we're in today where um, fact-finding is not the top priority. Emotions flare um, without the possibility for taking a breath and, and really trying to figure out what the facts are. Yeah, I haven't... I'm not going to venture an opinion on the ins and outs of Franken, because I just... I don't know. I've heard different things, and I'd need to really go back and read over it, you know? Um, I do think there's a thing when it comes to, like... You know, I'm afraid I'm going to lose my job for, like you say, mm-hmm. some minor infraction. I think... I think there's two sides of that. I think part of it is men feel afraid because they know deep down they've actually done stuff wrong that they could be called out for. I think that's true. If I were to try and dignify that fear or give it its best possible expression, I would say that it's not so much wrong that we're creating 
new standards for what's appropriate, say, in the workplace. Um, it might maybe be wrong to apply those standards retroactively to behaviour that was tolerated at the time, but if we're creating them in a forward-looking sense, I think that's one thing. Um, I think if I were to try and dignify the fear people have, it would, would be that those standards are not in themselves wrong, but incongruous with other ways in which our economy is evolving, where workers have less security, less respect, less institutions like unions to protect them, and are made to feel more disposable. And there kind of is a contradiction to saying, we're going to put a lot of very heavy protections in around issues to do with sex and sexuality and race and gender and so on, but we're not going to put any protections in at all for you being an employee at will who we can let go tomorrow and will the minute our bottom line justifies it. And I think people feel that contradiction and react badly to it. I can feel that in myself. I think that's where some of it comes from, and then I think some of it is just misogyny and some of it is just men want to behave in certain ways and don't like being told that they can't. I'll pause there. Or bullies of any gender yes. uh, want to behave in certain ways and don't want to be told they can't. And Yes, and, and um, so many of us work in what can only be called precarious economy jobs. And um, so much of the discourse is um, around... Um, a very small percentage of the workforce and the population so that, um, and this is another thing that I think um, needs to be spoken of more than it is, most victims of um, of really heavy duties, uh, physical, sexual assault are not, you know, are not in um positions of political power to begin with, whether you know they're treated well in them or not. They're poor, you know, they're non-white, they're working and living in, um, you know, sort of worst choice situations and um, are made vulnerable as a result of them. And uh, so much of the discussion around sexual assault leaves them out of the picture. I know I'm not the only one to be saying that either, um, but it's really important. And I think, you know, a lot of, of what gets talked about, starting with Harvey Weinstein and, and, and on down, um, and including especially what happens on college campuses, and that's a place where the discussion often gets stuck, you know, how um, young men and women who are students behave together and the poor choices that they make. Um, and it has so little meaning to um, people not living, you know, under such privileged circumstances. So that brings me on to, like, evaluating all of this um, in terms of if you talk... So I'm coming from a bit of a different place, perhaps, in terms of, like, you know, my background, my generation, the types of peers that I've had, in that I've spent about the last... 10 years, something like that, working in a variety of very progressive organisations, often mm -hmm. organisations that are explicitly geared towards social justice as an end. And amongst my peers, like the first thing they think about um, when they think about early second wave feminism 
is its failings, and particularly its failings to um, uh, be concerned for all women, and the two particular flashpoints is the, 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 the big monker that gets stapled onto it is white feminism, right? And then the other one would be um, uh, trans issues and issues relating to people who are trying to um, live outside of the gender uh, binary. So, for instance, you know, just in this conversation, when I was talking about a rapist, I talked about a, a, a man, and you sort of correctly said, well, it is more complicated than that. Um, I was just taking the sort of archetypal or stereotypical case. And so how do you begin to think about that quite strong moral condemnation that we get of early feminism from a lot of contemporary social justice advocates because I'll just give you my view at the outset which is I have very mixed feelings about it I think a lot of the criticisms are completely valid a lot of the way not just historically but today the the concern as you just said that, that a lot of mainstream feminism exercises is not distributed evenly over all different types of women I think that that is something we have to face honestly and talk about. At the same time, I do sort of worry that our evaluation of a lot of early feminism just reduces these incredibly impressive women to their failings, which they certainly had. But if, if all you can see when you look at second wave feminism is that these were people who did not hold a 21st century view of racial justice, let's be clear. That That's true, but, like, a modern 21st century view of social justice did not come from nowhere, and we had to start somewhere. So I just, I think there's two stories you can tell there, both of which have a lot of truth in them, and I haven't reconciled them in any way that seems coherent to me. So that's my personal view. I'll pause there. How do, how do you think about that sort of retroactive looking back at this history? Seems like an excellent summary. Um, yes, there's no um, papering over the racial divisions in second wave fem feminism. They were real, and um, I think they linger. And um, they were especially acute around issues of sexual violence because of the wildly disproportionate number of black men, African-American men, who have been um, accused, convicted, executed for crimes against women that in most cases they probably didn't even commit, um, but certainly completely out of all proportion to the crime itself. And, um, and that was, uh, that was a vocal, vocal problem. That was something that, for instance, Angela Davis, um, came to verbal blows with, uh, Susan Brown Miller over it. They, um, you know, they never found common ground, um, and at the same time, of course, there were um, African-American women who were speaking out against misogyny in the Black Panther movement or, you know, the civil rights movement and saying, you know, come on, 
sisters, um, we have to step up. You know, we can't accept this kind of behavior in our community any more than um, white women can accept it in theirs. And, you know, there were some bridges that were made. You know, Audre Lorde and Michelle Wallace talked about um, Elaine Brown, who was, um, a, a, was briefly the leader of the Black Panthers, has written a very interesting memoir talking about these issues. Um, but, yeah, I mean... Second wave feminism is a complete failure. I, I, I agree with you. I don't think there's any, or at least I heard you saying there's no, there's, there's no justice in, in describing it as a failure. We're building on, you know, on the, of course, imperfect, but extremely important and brave, um, things that were achieved in those years. Um, you know, I, I, you know, that's the generation that, following mine, that's a generation of, um, the students I teach and, you know, they, to me, they acknowledge it. So, um, I'm, I'm hopeful that, um, that, that, that we can make that a, a, a more widespread understanding of what went down in, in the, you know, 40, 45 years ago. I had this thought just listening to you speak. I can well imagine a counterfactual alternate history in which the feminist movement had been, at sometimes I guess less overtly antagonistic towards uh, other claims of justice, for instance, racial justice. I can I can imagine a history where things went better. What I can't imagine is a history in which people with a modern social justice analysis just fell from the sky in the early 60s, because that's not how ideas and thought structures and political ideologies come into being. They evolve and they build on their predecessors. And I guess our moral evaluation has to be somewhere between those two extremes. There, there were failings, but nothing starts from nowhere. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Um, final question, then. I realise we're running a tiny bit over time. Um, and, you know, I ask this because, like, a lot of the time when I talk about social justice issues, people see me as being on, like, the absolute hardcore left, and I get called... Um, Someone wrote me a lovely email a few days ago calling me an anti-white racist, and I've had a few of those, um, because, like, I'm generally for racial justice and affirmative action and stuff like that. Um, but actually, I have a certain amount of nuance, or, like, I have criticisms that I would make of modern social justice movements, and I just, I think a lot of them are how we see the past. So one of them is that, you know, the early feminists are sort of, we can just dismiss them as racists, for instance. I would, I think that needs a lot of nuancing, that evaluation. The other one I think needs a lot of nuancing is there are a lot of people today, both on the sort of um, feminist and sexual justice side and on the race and racial justice side, who want to say that no progress has been made and things are as bad now as they ever are. And... I think they want to say that because they want to resist the narrative of, like, you've got everything you want now, so go sit down and shut up. But again, surely there's a middle ground there of, like, a lot remains to be done. Um, 
particularly with respect to people who have multiple historically discriminated against identities, so say like queer women of colour or something, right? Mm -hmm. A lot remains to be done, but it's also simply not true to say that there's been no progress, and indeed it is somewhat insulting to those of us who went before us to say that. Um, So again, that's my view, which is something of a middle ground between those two extremes. And I just want to put that back on you. Like, how do you think about progress on these issues from, say, the 70s through to today? I guess I I can answer that in a couple of ways. One is is by relaying what women I asked that question question of um, responded to me and sort of without exception and it, it wasn't you know hundreds of women it was a handful they said nothing has changed that was the you know that was the first response and then you know on reflection well yes of course there are some things that are better but not enough has changed um, and I would go with that I'd um, I do think that there have been some really profound changes um, I think, and, you know, and that, that's part of my argument. If we really went back to 1970 or 1975 and saw um, the nature of the culture around sexuality across the board, um, we'd be kind of stunned. Uh, you know, things that, that that we all put up with, that women and men put up with. And um, as I said, I was I was a very young person in those years. Um, it leaves a mark. Um, And I also want to say that even around the issues of racial division, um, as regards this this question of violence, that there's there's a wealth of work being made now by women of color, um, by queer women of color, by um, every aspect of um, every community in the art world. around sexual violence. I, you know, there are a number of examples of, of that work toward the end of my book. And, um, you know, to me, that is um, just really moving testimony to the, the possibility of, of a wider range of voices on this subject and, you know, of experiences um, around this subject being heard. So, I, you know, I mean, that... that can only be good. I mean, this can only mean there's been some improvement. It has, with the huge provisos that statistics in this area are notoriously inaccurate, and that the decline has not been evenly distributed, it has gone down, right? Like, the prevalence of rape and rates of sexual violence have declined quite significantly since the 70s. Yes, absolutely. Um, You know, by by most standard measures, that in itself is sort of a dangerous thing to say. But yes, it seems undeniably true that certain kinds of rape, and I, I think this does not apply to domestic violence, but certain kinds of sexual assault have declined enormously um, since the 1970s and 80s. But of course, crime across the board also seems to have declined enormously. So the murder rates are down, and you know, armed robbery is down. You know, there there are um, things that have changed in our in our social and cultural landscape for reasons that, um, you know, urbanologists and sociologists I'm I'm sure have lots to say about. All I can do is comment on them uh, or note them. 
that seems to be the case. So, yeah, um, I mean, there too, that, you know, there's statistical support such as it is, you know, compromised as it is that some things have improved, but there is certainly, um, you know, no end in sight of, um, the, this landscape of trouble. What do you think needs to happen, or um, maybe that's too strong? What would you like to see in terms of um, thinking and writing and art um, on this topic going forward? You know, so much of the recent work that I've seen coming out of the visual arts, and, you know, also, I, you know, to some extent in um, other disciplines and, and to a more qualified extent in, in popular media, you know, in commercial movies and, and television, um, has become more nuanced um, and has become more open. And so, you know, I, I don't have, I, I'm, I'm not a good prognosticator. I, you know, I, I, I don't have any predictive sense of um, what's going to come that's going to help. Um, but I think more like this, you know, more and expanding um, possibilities for um, women and men and everyone else to, um, however, um, people identify um, to feel that they're being heard. So the book is Unspeakable Acts, Women, Art and Sexual Violence in the 70s. I assume people can get that from Amazon and fine booksellers anywhere. Is yes. there anywhere else you'd like to direct listeners to go? A website? You're not you're not on social media, are you? I am on Facebook and Instagram. Okay, terrific. Um listen Nancy, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for um educating me on a lot of this stuff that I didn't know and yeah it was an education for me too and a, and a pleasure talking with you so thanks for having me on Music